0: And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than than itself, and they go in and live there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation.
1: In the context in chapter 12, you see escalating conflict between Jesus and his enemies. (coughs) There were those controversies about things Jesus was doing on the Sabbath. Then there was that whole big discussion about whether Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan or not. You can see that his enemies are really uh, you know, on the attack and trying to discredit Jesus any way that they can. And so they come up with a new approach to that in verse 38. What do they do? Ask for a sign. Do you see a problem with that request?
2: They've already seen the sign.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, what else would they want? You know, this would imply Jesus had not done any miracles. But look all at all the things he'd done. And uh, it's kind of a studied insult. It's kind of leaving the impression Jesus lacked credentials. Well, what's Jesus' answer? Will he perform a sign on demand?
2: No sign shall be given.
1: Yeah. He is not a circus performer. You know, he, he, he's not just here to gratify some appetite for wonders. If that's what they're into, Jesus will not do that. He says no sign will be given it, but what sign? Jonah. Yeah. Now, what does he mean by the sign of Jonah? Well, he
0: compares it to himself being dead for three days, just how Jonah was in the fish for three days.
1: Yeah. Jesus was buried in the earth. Jonah was buried at sea. Both of them for three days, and then they were brought back to life, so to speak. And as a result of that, plus Jonah's preaching, what did Nineveh do?
2: They repented.
1: Yes. And they were spared. Do you remember what Jonah's message was to Nineveh?
2: Repent. Or yet three days and the city will be over. Not three.
1: 40. Oh, Forty, 40 days <laughs> and Nineveh will be destroyed. But they repented and... At the preaching of this foreigner prophet because of the sign he brought back to life after three days in the heart of the sea. Think about the parallel with Jesus. Jesus, who was a much better man than Jonah, who was a native, not a foreigner, you know, who had a gospel message, not a message of condemnation you know, and who was raised from the dead, not just raised from the belly of the fish, there is all the more reason to believe in Jesus than there was in Jonah, and yet they don't. And when they didn't, when the Jewish nation refused Jesus, what happened to them?
2: They were condemned.
1: They were condemned and ultimately destroyed about how long after? years about 40 years yeah you can just see a lot of parallels in Nineveh and this generation except Nineveh <laughs> repented at the preaching of Jonah and averted the destruction these people did not even repent at the preaching of Jesus
0: so are you saying the people of Nineveh knew about the fish incident
1: I think they had to for it to be assigned to them
0: Where does
1: it say it was a sign? Okay. Luke 11. Okay. Luke 11, uh, 29, in a parallel. This generation is a wicked generation that seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So I think the idea of Jonah being a sign is that that's who he was assigned to, which means to me that they had to know about that. Which explains to me why they repented at Jonah's preaching. Because otherwise, why would a great pagan city repent because one enemy prophet preaches for a day? You know, if we got some, you know, Iraqi coming over here or Iranian or whatever and, you know, preaching for a day through our streets that 40 days the U.S. will be overthrown, you reckon that would bring about repentance? Probably get him arrested <laughs> terrorism or something thoughts and comments through 41
0: so this 40 years
1: are you talking about the destruction of yeah 1970? i am he doesn't draw that point out but i think that's at least an interesting comparison maybe he had that in mind maybe he didn't but you know they got in 40 years what nineveh would have gotten in 40 days caleb
0: it's interesting how Nineveh only got one sign and they repented, but these people, um, Jesus gave them many signs, but they
1: didn't repent. That's exactly right. It's just uh, really outrageous, their attitude, as he calls them, an evil and adulterous generation. They, they do not have a, a righteous attitude at all. By the way, it looks to me like a passage like this shows that uh, the story about Jonah is a true story. You know, to say that these imaginary men of this imaginary generation will arise at the judgment and condemn these real people doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He's certainly showing this as something that really happened. And in connection with that, the Queen of the South, who came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She came a long ways for that, they've got somebody a whole lot wiser than Solomon and uh, so they will be condemned by people like the men of Nineveh and the Queen of the South uh, because they repented and glorified God for much lesser reasons than this generation has to do that.
2: Is this the only place where they ask for a sign?
1: No. In Matthew they do again in chapter 16. Uh. 16.1, 161 they uh, asked him to show them a sign from heaven which may indicate I don't know if they wanted something you know cosmic sign or something <laughs> I don't know. That's, I think it's just a trick, it's a technique. you know keep asking till you finally find something you can't do and then start you know harping on that.
2: I always thought it was kind of possibly the idea you know he says no sign will be given. Um you know he's not going to force them to believe it or you cr- do something that would prove it to them if they don't believe what he has already done, which kind of fits with the whole idea. Nobody's forced to believe it. We by faith have to believe the evidence. Absolutely. So they they've had the other signs which should have been sufficient
1: jesus never feels compelled to make them believe and
2: i think i guess we can do the same thing today though if we're if we keep looking for something especially answers to questions that there are no answers to because we're just not sure and we just don't know and we we want we ask everybody because we want the definite sign <laughs> it's like we're doing the same thing God show me a sign show me a sign from heaven and then I'll be good
1: well we have all the reason that we need to believe you know we may we may wish we had more answers you may know, we may seek to know more of what God's revealed but we have sufficient evidence on which to base our faith and God did not make it to be something that was impossible not to believe. He could have. He could have done this in such a way that there was no way we could have avoided believing. But I think he does present it in such a way that it sifts people's hearts. And those that have good hearts believe, and those that don't can find excuses not to do so. And I think that means a lot when it comes to our teaching people. That, you know, we can't just say, well, I'm going to convince this person. Well, Jesus didn't, God didn't. They could have. I mean, you know, we can't, but they could have. But they didn't choose to do that. God intended for the gospel to divide people. And everywhere the word was preached in the New Testament, some believed and some didn't. It always separated people based upon their heart and character. So when we preach the gospel, some will disbelieve. So did we do a bad job? No, the gospel just did its job, which is to separate the believers from the non-believers. Other thoughts through 42? Well, he goes on, I think, still talking about these people. To talk about a demon that's cast out of a man, and then it tries to find a rest, but it can't find any. That's kind of ironic in view of what Jesus said in uh, 11.28. Maybe the demon didn't try to find rest in the right place. <laughs> you know, Jesus is the one who gives rest. A demon's probably not going to find it. Um, and so when it doesn't find it, where does it go? Back where it came from. Yeah, and what does it find there?
2: Unoccupied, swept, and put in order,
1: and that provides a wonderful demon opportunity. He goes and gets out. It gets uh, seven demon buddies. There's room for them too, and the guy turns out worse off than he'd been before. If we are uncommitted and unemployed, we're a prime target for a hostile takeover. You know, Satan loves. A vacuum. And so if we get the bad out of our life, but we don't replace it with good, we're just vulnerable to get into even worse shape. When they when they try to get rid of the bad, but they don't replace it with the Lord, then they'll just get worse and worse because they're not really allowing the Lord to fill them back up. And in our life, how many times does Jesus, or does Paul or somebody use put-ons with put-offs. It's never just put-off, it's put-off and put on You know, we fill up our life with righteousness after we get out the wickedness. Comments and questions?
2: How does this relate exactly to what he was
1: saying? Well, I think he's describing these people. Which people? The the evil and wicked generation. That they are people who have not, they don't have God in them they're empty and so they that's why satan keeps filling their heart they they you know jesus has been trying to cast out the demon but when they don't put the lord in his place the devil just comes back in in worse situations so i think that this is a description of this evil and adulterous generation he says this is the way it'll be with this evil generation you know you guys are just going to keep getting worse because you never you know fill your life up with 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 me
0: I don't know if this is his point, but it also makes me think of like the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They may have emptied out like murder and adultery and you know sins like that, but since they didn't fill it up with the right things, now they appear righteous, but they're even worse than before because you know they're self-righteous and stuff like that.
1: Yes, good point.
0: Why does it mention waterless places?
1: That is an interesting point. I don't know. It makes it look like that demons don't like water. Now, that might be the case. Which if it were, it makes it really especially funny when the legion of demons wants to go into the pigs and the pigs go berserk with the demons inside them and stampede off the cliff and are drowned in (laughs) water. You know, if demons really have an aversion to water, then that would make that story even more of kind of a touche, where uh, they, don't, uh, they don't expect the pigs to react that way, but they do. The problem, though, with that view, at least it would have to be explained, is uh, Mark chapter 9 and somewhere verse 22. Where the father asked for Jesus to heal his son from demon possession, mm-hmm. he said it's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Well, that demon didn't seem like it minded uh, the water, so I don't know. Uh, you know, it's kind of a kind of a mystery to me. Uh, but those are those are at least some things to reflect on. Those are the only though. two places that mention water. That's the only two places I can think of. Because I really, I've, I've struggled with that in connection with the pig story. Because I'd love to make the point, I think I have before, that, you know, that was probably something really repulsive to a demon. But then when I read in Mark 9 that the demon threw him in the water, uh, I don't know if I can do that or not.
0: What would a demon like fire? I'm not sure why a spirit would care about
1: Good point. things like that. I don't know either. <laughs> But, you know, never having been a demon, I just have a hard time knowing what they like and what they don't That's like. It's true. Yeah. It's always, you know, we do learn some things about, you know, satanic psychology and so forth in the Bible, but there's a whole lot about that side we don't understand. So. Other questions or comments I can't answer? Well, I think he moves on. Um, to some some teaching about the kingdom. This is mostly going to be a section of parables about the kingdom, although he, he starts and ends that section with a section about his family. So twelve forty six to 50.
2: While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he said the one, or but he answered the one he was telling him, and said, "Who is my mother and who are my brothers?" And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he be, he said, "Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother." Okay,
1: uh, Jesus does lots of shocking things. His mother and brother were outside uh, looking for him. Maybe the Churchill people. I don't know. Ryan. Oh, okay, Ryan. Um, You you prefer Ryan to the Churchill people. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So you know, his his mother and his siblings are outside wanting to talk to him, and and Jesus does this interesting number. You know, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he looks at his disciples and kind of you know points them out and he says, "These are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father." You know, Jesus is independent of family ties. You know, he's not—he's uh, not connected now in some sort of submissive way to his mother's and uh, mother and brothers. He's really now united with his spiritual family, those who do the will of, of his father. Uh, I think this just really uh, really makes us look at that differently because so often, you know, our physical family is what takes priority, but that's not the way Jesus saw that. Is this the
0: case where they, were, they thought he was crazy and were trying to like take him away or is that a different?
1: It appears this is the case for Mark's Parallel.
0: Okay. So then especially in that sense if they're trying to stop him from doing the work. You're exactly then, right. You know,
1: yes. that's not. Yeah. Though that, I, I mean, obviously since that point is not made here in Matthew, that's not really the point Matthew is making by using the story. Okay. Anything else on chapter twelve? Yes, Caleb.
0: It's interesting how Jesus refers um, to um, his apostles as his brothers, because um, God's their father, and so it's interesting how he puts them like on the same level as he is.
1: Yes, that is an interesting point. Um, you might look for that at also. Matthew twenty-eight ten. When when um, Jesus met the women after his resurrection, he said to them, "Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me." That's another passage where he calls his disciples brethren. All right. Other comments or questions?
0: Doesn't they talk about that in Hebrews?
1: Yes, Hebrews 2 cites a a passage from somewhere, Psalms or something, where he calls them his brethren. Yeah, good point. He's our older brother. All right, um, well, we have these parables now that explain the kingdom.